from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. Good morning. This is Michelle. And this is Mark. And my sound level is really loud. Is it? In, yeah. your, in your ears uh, in or my, in reality? In, in reality. In I your think. ear holes? Is <clears> that <throat> better? Yes, is that better? That's better, yes. All right. Especially when I accelerate my voice, it, it's like blowing out my speakers. Are you sure it has nothing to do with your cold? It could be that I'm congested and that's <laughs> amplifying the vibration of my voice. Exactly. It's You've got some acoustic issues exactly. going on between your ears right. this morning. So other that's than about my... That's all that's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> Other than my cold, what else is going on in the tiny house world? Nothing. <laughs> oh, I heard something <laughs> fan, uh, uh, um, very unknown about Perry earlier this week. Oh, uh, do tell. Uh, oh. Uh, oh, I couldn't a, not guess what. Really? Okay. Well, is, I'm going to yeah. unpack this because this is actually, sure. I didn't know this until this came up in a meeting. Sure, yeah. So, Perry, who is not in a tiny house yet. Mm. Um, is starting to pare his life down oh, right. to owning 20? Well, I said 50, but I think oh, I'm going to have to 50. go up to 100. Oh, oh, oh you're b- bumping it back up. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's tough. So, but, but to owning between 50 and 100 things. Uh, so, what, so what is a thing? Is an individual book a thing or is a library a thing? I haven't figured that part out yet. I think, I think I've gone about it the wrong way, which is what Mark had suggested. The, the, I, I had gone about it the wrong way, which is the opposite of what Mark had suggested. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying Mark's always right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> which, is, which is I should have picked the hundred things that I wanted to keep and then just toss every fucking thing out after that. But what I'm doing now is I'm going through everything and going, should I keep it or should I get rid of it? I and it's just fucking hard. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. it's just freaking hard. So I think I'm going to start over and just identify the things I want. And then everything else I will not even give consideration. It'll just go in the shit can. So bridge is number one. I mean, to <laughs> so, keep, of course, is what I meant. <laughs> so to this, say. this, is, this is really, this is kind of epic. Like <clears throat> shit can is in literal garbage or like put it in a box, put oh, it in no. the garage and nope. test yourself to see if nope. you need anything in six months. Nope. There's a lot of things that, that I have that I haven't put my eyes on in many years. And so the question is, why do I have them? Why don't I just get rid of them? I mean, some of the things like personal records, like my old, DD-214 for my military service. I need to keep that. But a lot of that stuff, why am I keeping it? And so what I would really like to do, and this is where, where Mark was right, because it gets, it gets tough. You know what, when I pull it out and put my eyes on it, all the stories come back about that thing and why I should be keeping it, which makes it hard to get rid of. But if I just throw everything in the garbage that's in a given box and don't even look in the box then those oh. stories don't come up. I know, right? It's we hard. We need to talk about this. We need to like have a whole show on this, I think. I, re- I think we do. Mark, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your thumbs up. We need to yep. talk about this because that's, that's epic. Very yeah. cool. Well, we'll see how, how I do. That's epic. Yeah, we'll see if you can manage it. When I said 100, I meant 500. So <laughs> did you... Pairs uh, of shoes. Yeah. So did you... Can you share with listeners kind of like w- when you did start the... Did you have like an obvious number one and number two? Like... This is like the number one thing I could never ever get rid of. No, I like I said I didn't go that approach. Oh, okay. so, I thought you re. re- no, no, I haven't. Other, I, I haven't done it yet. Gotcha. So the the first thing that came to mind was 
sell all my guns. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it, but now that we're on the topic, I got to shit I'm in the market guns. for some. <laughs> That's so funny because I'm in the market for some. Right, oh, it's go. too bad because they're already sold. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> so it was them and then the, all the ammo that I had. Yes, I had a shit ton of ammo. I oh, had more ammo God. than guns. And then the next thing was my bike. and or one of my I have two bikes. I have a, a Mazi Road Racer and then a, the one that I ride to work every day. And the Road Racer... I used to love that bike, and um, I still love it. I rode on it yesterday, uh, this weekend, um, but I don't ride it often as, as much as I used to. And so, I put that one up on Craigslist. Wow! Yesterday. So yep. we can't come to your house in Apocalypse now. Nope. No ammo. I still have the food. I got to get rid of that. No somehow. ammo. A tiny house in an apocalypse. <laughs> food doesn't do you any good <laughs> if you don't have the ammo to protect it, dude. Imagine the trailer you need for a um, anti-armor. Tiny house. Yeah. <laughs> Something that's capable of withstanding roadside bombs <laughs> <laughs> and alien invasions. I, th- I think the SWAT team drives them. So I right. think that design has already been actually. done. Hook it up to the back of a paddy wagon. <coughs> um, hey, it just occurred to me. I think we have a guest today. We do have a guest. And it's interesting that we had that the conversation we just had because it blends right into the ideas and thoughts I think that our guest is going to have. Welcome, Brad Kittle from Texas Tiny Houses. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, so glad to be here and listening to you guys. I think of a number of things that make that a lot faster and easier. Uh, the process, yeah. You can always go ahead and wait a few years and get a divorce and walk out with your suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend that one. It's about two and a half million dollar downsize in a very short period of time. But um, yeah. And you know uh, what your good stuff is right it. away. Yes. Um, yeah. She tells you what it is. Yeah, she tells tell you Because that's what she's taking. The sad part is, is that then in your next love story, you don't have a house for the next five years. And when she finally leaves, I got enough money to build my first tiny house. See <laughs> 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 yeah, how this works, guys. Yeah. <laughs> It just took me to my 50s to figure it out. You guys are ahead of me, okay? So. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're I killing like me. Now I live in a house with no electricity and no running water. I have walking water. It means I walk <laughs> it back there. <laughs> have no, nobody shares my, my floating twin bed. It floats on ropes from the ceiling. I don't answer to anybody and move my stuff out of all the rooms in the house so that I can have a space in the garage instead. And which is, you know, my space in the most of the houses I ever lived in, even when I had 4,500 square feet, my space really that I got to control. It wasn't in the house. <laughs> so it was in the doghouse. My hope is in the 25 to 35-year-olds. And as we build the new houses and the downsizing happens, my prayer is that we do it healthy. Because we have generation, my generation, I'll be 61. So my generation of really unhealthy people that are downsizing from gigantic houses expecting your generation to pick up 40 million, 4,000 square foot houses and use them. Oh, and by the way, they're about ready to fall apart because they're built in obsolescence. So I applaud your being smart about downsizing. My cautionary tale is that nobody's talking about the dangers of it for the generation that's going to grow up in there. I'd like to I'd like to ask you about those dangers because I'm not familiar with those. But before that, I should probably we should probably level set your understanding of who you're talking to. So I'm I'm 50. Mark is. Over 50. Over 50, and Michelle is... Not yet 50. Not, but <laughs> <laughs> That's good. We got, we got at least a whole section there, yeah. Yeah, yeah so we're not young whippersnappers <laughs> over here. Um, she's she's going to inherit all of us. See, she's the part that's the 60 million people are going to hit the wall that are retiring. The baby boomers are falling back on the 45-year-olds 
um, to take care of. Right. So what are the what are the dangers that you were talking about with regard to downsizing and all that? Well, as you know, I build on a 95% pure salvage. I do this for a number of reasons, sustainability being the primary one, but the second one is no toxins, no formaldehyde, no plastics, no vinyls, no sheetrock, which gives off formaldehyde, no latex paints for acrylic acid. And I build them out of salvage materials because I don't cut down a single tree and I save more energy by not making glass at all than I'll ever save in the lifespan of glass put into a vinyl coating wow. into your house. Vinyl gives off endocrine disruptive compounds that mimic estrogen. So if you don't have a blood-brain barrier, any child under eight years old is breathing, breathing in estrogen when they're in those little tiny boxes that people are building calling tiny houses. Now, if you understand this, and this is the first and foremost thing, you have 15 times less there than you have wall surface area in one of these tiny houses on wheels. And so we'll call them those. All right, and let's just suppose for a second that you go in there with your love and you are going to have a nice little evening, you're chit-chatting at the table. How much um, oxygen do you think you're using up to create carbon dioxide per hour each sitting there chatting? Are we kissing? It depends on what we're doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm at the chatting stage. Give me a second. Chatting. <laughs> okay, you're at the chatting stage. That's 528 gallons an hour. 528 gallons an hour you're using up, okay? Now keep in mind you have uh, 8-foot wide tops by 13.5-foot tall tops by 20-foot tall average house producing after you stuff all your crap in there, an open space for 6,500 gallons of air. Gallons. Easy conversion. Because you breathe 528 gallons an hour each while you're sitting there chatting. Now let's just say the next hour you got a little wine, you're giggling, you're laughing, you're kind of getting a little sexy, and 750 each. You've gone through now in a matter of two hours, 2,500 gallons. You get up in that loft and you have an hour of mad passion because you're nice and young. And that's <laughs> gallons an hour each, each, 2,000 each. My you see now gone through 4,000 up the loft. And my goodness, 2,500 down there while you're sitting down, that's 6,500 of your 6,500 gallons of good air in that building. When you close it up with this nice sealed up tight vinyl windows and door that's producing endocrine disruptive compounds, you're breathing in acrylic acid, you got the formaldehyde out of the um, cabinets. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I gotta, got hold on. I got to stop you for a second. I got to stop you for a second. You're okay. fading out a little bit. Did you lean back? We're getting a little feedback on your end. No, okay, sorry. Okay, keep going. Spot. We're at 6,500 yeah, out of 6,500. Okay, so now, you're still going to fall asleep after that mad passionate hour. You're going to go ahead and sleep for a few hours, possibly. You wake up in the morning. Now, I'm just lethargic. I don't have enough energy. I don't understand what's going on. Well, I'm hypoxic. That means I don't get enough oxygen. So I go down there. I light my old propane stove to make that old coffee to give me a little jiffy kick up. And don't notice it's burning orange instead of blue. That means it's not burning hot enough to burn all the chemicals. So now you're also getting the propane into your little oxygen environment. And, oh, by the way. You had a baby downstairs all night. Did we mention that? No. Now, what did that baby do? What did he? Yeah. What's at the bottom? A little baby down there sleeping all night long where all the heaviest gases are going to sit and where the biggest lack of oxygen is going to be. And we're going to convince all these young couples to go out there and do this all across our country. So we have not one in 50 or one in 60 that are autistic. Now we're going to go ahead and push that up to one in 30 is what they project by 2030. And with the help of these tiny houses and oxygen being a lack, because you know, if you do put an air, air, I'm saying this carefully, air exchanger in your house. That's a thousand gallons for two of you just to survive. Now, suppose it's cold as hell out there and you got that minimal amount of insulation and you don't want to open that thing up to a thousand gallons an hour coming in. You're dooming everybody in there to suffer through sucking all those toxins down for the first three years that you live in that thing. Now, why would I have a problem with that? Because as a due diligence builder, somebody believes that everything I build, somebody's got to live in, I'm responsible for their life, especially I dare not go out there and sell this stuff because the symptoms of, just in case that cough persists, of formaldehyde poisoning include migraine, headaches, vertigo, and congestion, long-term congestion. 
the congestion usually goes without recognition because it's just a light cough. Nobody notices it. But after about a year, you're in the hospital. You get all the formaldehyde in your system. Your child has big gaps in the wiring in their brain because it hasn't been able to wire properly. Little details like that. So, and why so, do the TV shows I had to focus and not talk about it? So, so you have said a lot. <clears throat> um, basically, what you're oh, saying boy. is that the <clears throat> children that are being raised and the people that are living in these large houses are having the same experience, but because the houses are large, the concentration of the chemicals you're talking about is not as great as it is in a tiny house that's built with similar materials. And you're saying, exactly. you're saying that because these people, the tiny house movement, um, are building with the same materials, they, are, they think they're doing the right thing, but they're actually killing themselves is basically what you're saying. More importantly, they're destroying the health of the next generation and the generation after that, which I prize most. Right. I'm giving up on some of them, you know. But yes, absolutely. Evidence is out. I've had young people come through. One girl whose baby cried for four months, and she went through seven doctors. Her vertigo and migraines caused her her job. She couldn't keep working. And so finally, um, the eighth doctor said, get out of that trailer. And within three months, the baby stopped crying. She lost her vertigo or migraines and went back to work. This was in a, she was living in a, she was living in a tiny house? trailer not a tiny house a tiny trailer small oh. basically similar you know park homes park models all these things that are not regulated there's no formaldehyde regulations whatsoever yeah it's pretty you know pretty devastating to the people that get into them but more importantly when you look at california the only state in the union that managed to find formaldehyde and all that engineered flooring that was down you go gee isn't that amazing they only sold it in california nobody's using that in tiny houses nobody's using that anywhere but california so they're going to take it up out of california because within three years you got leukemia so so you gee you, put that in there <laughs> Okay, so you're you're making a lot of claims, um, and and I'm I have no evidence to to dispute what you're saying, but let's not put let's not alarm the tiny housers um, with, with 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 conversations that we can't really substantiate with any evidence or anything like that. Instead, let's talk about your tiny houses. Let's talk about the the things that you're doing to make it healthy. That make yeah that avert the things that you're talking about and and create healthy living spaces for these people. So you said that ninety five percent of your yep of your um your homes or 95 percent of the materials that you use are reclaimed <clears throat> um where do you get all that stuff it's free all over the country we have billions and billions of dollars of the most valuable resources in the world you have the largest standing virgin forest in the world in our country hidden and it sells for twenty dollars a square foot board foot in japan or germany and yet we throw it in the dump it's hidden in the form of giant houses and barns and old buildings across the country. Your generation's treasure. So, the problem is that nobody wants to pick it up and use it. They all think it's trash. That, can, that is 50% of our landfills today is building materials. And out of that, half could be made into homes, which means all the flooring, all the beams, all the two-by-fours in the walls, all the interior skins, all the roof metal. All I have to put in is insulation, screws, nails, underlayment, house wrap with aluminum on for radiant barrier. And installation, I'm ready to go. So I'm going to challenge your notion here for a moment. Um, you said nobody wants to use these. So I can't speak for the rest of the country, and I can't speak for the tiny house movement at large. But I can speak for the Northwest, and I can speak that uh, to the fact that there is a rising part of the reason why we invited you, of course, to be on the tiny house podcast. <clears throat> There's so many tiny house pod, tiny house people that really want to do this. They want to recycle. They want to be more responsible steward of the planet. They want to be more environmentally, um, you know, friendly. 
um, or responsible, but that's a much better word. So I'm going to challenge a notion that nobody wants to do this. Actually, there it's a growing movement. I think the sustainability movement and the tiny okay. house movement have a lot in common. Um, what we'd like to know from you specifically is suggestions about how do we, do you just knock on someone's door that's, that's their barn is falling down and you say, hey, can I have it? How do we integrate your ideas into the tiny house world? Well, how, 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 how do you personally do it first? Let's, let's ask him that question. Okay, and, gonna, and like, do you travel all over the country to get this stuff? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm going I'm to make this as easy as possible. More millionaires are made out of salvage than any other business in the United States. And they start with nothing. The process is simple. You offer to go ahead and do something for free and you get enormous rewards. You go ahead to the beauty salon and you look for the little old lady whose husband just died and you clean up your storage spaces and I'll take down your buildings if you need it for free. You run an ad. You say, I will go ahead and take down things for free because somebody's going to be paying taxes on it. They want to take it down. You go to the city hall and you say, how many houses you got lined up for demo? I want to bid on them. I want to take one down. You go to the owner and say, they're going to take it down and slap a lien on it. I'll take it down and owner finance it. $50 a month to let me take that house down and clean it off for you. And I'll take your problem away. So they give things to you. I turn away millions and millions of dollars in houses and barns and buildings every year because I can't go more than 35 minutes. And now I have more than I would need for the rest of my life. I have enough inventory to build over 100 houses in stock for the 43 acres I'm putting together to create a model to show it can be done with a bed and breakfast and a market to sell things and music video stages for festivals so we can have people get together in one place and learn it all and be able to then share it. I agree there are some people out there. When I say nobody, I mean there's no corporation. There's no government financing or support. There is nobody out there with money from the banking industry that will support this. I've been this for 12 years in the tiny house industry, building out a salvage. I've been in the salvage business 35 years, including rehabbing inner city houses in Austin for 12 years and winning awards all the way up to Entrepreneur of the Year, revitalization awards and everything else. I can't get financing. Nobody's financing my houses unless I go ahead and comply with these ridiculous RV code type of ratings, which means I got to put toxins in there. And this debate about... <coughs> Not saying nobody in that sense. Yes, there's a lot of people that start following. I get testimonials all the time of people that, if you want to go and find out how, there's a four-hour video on that I've offered on my site for years, virtually for five dollars a month. You can see the video on how to become a salvage miner and everything you need to know about the rat shit, bat shit, pigeon shit, asbestos, and all the things that you got to possibly breathe to get it. But you get your materials for free and nowhere else, as I did. I've got stacked up, and you can lose money at it on paper. So you don't pay any taxes. I want to inspire millions of small businesses where you and your three sons go out there and tear a house down and you get a bunch of trash and don't pay taxes on it, just got expenses for expensing off the truck for your sons and the food you had to eat on the job and all the tools and everything. So we support the war. We're giving our tax money. We support ourselves, our family through barter. And as soon as you start getting big enough that you might have to go ahead and fall under the government umbrella and pay unemployment tax stuff, why well, your son starts his own business. And we have tiny businesses all over tearing down buildings. When we get together for a big building, we tear it down. My goal is to create salvage outposts like I'm creating here where you can go ahead and gather your things together, store them together. You can go ahead then and have common tools to build with and common interior areas to build with and common trailers to be able to haul it out to you. <laughs> if we do this through co-ops and you're saving your stuff up, you got resource banks and you got your little space and you're saving your wood and you got your old studs and you got your stained glass and so does this other guy and these like savings deposit boxes and you got a chance to go there and learn and teachers are retired or teach your kids while you're out doing the work and bartering with them with windows and doors you create a community a pure salvage outpost is a community where you can then have the elders with arthritis that can't do carpentry teach the young kids and reinstill this possibly the value of the elders in raising the kids 
If we do this with outposts that are co-ops, that are non-profs, you can bring your stuff there and store it, have some elder sell it and make a commission on it, and you'd be out there working. And this is a way for us to create community. Now, if the Northwest was so happy and hot on this, or California or any place else that speaks green, I wouldn't be talking like this for 10 years and not having anybody else there making 95% pure salvage, all human American labor to take it down, all human American labor to put it up. And it'll last for 100 years. And I save more energy before I build the house than the house we use in its entire lifetime by not making the glass, by not making the cast iron, by not making the hardware. And that was taken out of the ground, the coal, by children that were 12 years old. And the saws were sharpened by children who were 12 years old. And our ancestors worked for 352 days a year to make all that stuff. And if we don't respect it, what are the children supposed to say when it's all in the dump one day? And that's our biggest problem. You're going to hold, there should be not just a movement. This should be such a groundswell to create American jobs out of trash before the big corporations throw it away because it's competition for what they do. So it's it's so you, you you have again you've said a lot, and there are people who are doing these kind of things. Um, at least in the Northwest, as Michelle said, I mean, we know two very successful people, Eric Bowen up here, who's got his Metalwood Salvage, who's doing exactly what you're doing, except he's not turning around and building houses he's he's building other really neat things right mark and then we have the other guy shane yeah. who started the rebuilding center which has become i think it's a multi-billion or multi-million dollar non-profit organization that does exactly what you what you say so it's not several of doing it there are several i'm not yeah. saying this doing it but i'm saying is this needs to be a national well of course of, of course of course it, yes it does need to be be national but you know the way things get done in in a law-based society is that people have to go and talk to government and lobby government to put in place legislation that allow this kind of thing to happen. And if you're if you're whining about corporations having the power and dominating the government and keeping these kind of things from passing, then you're not a part of the problem. You're not a part of the solution. You're part of the problem. If you don't create the solution to be able to take as an example, then you have no solution. You can only bitch. I've created the solution that nobody else has created. I've managed to show you how with 20 gallons of diesel fuel, I can take down a house and create three houses out of it. 20 gallons of total energy consumed. And on top of that, energy efficient so that I can open it up and through the Venturi effect, cool it and close it up and be able to heat it with virtually no real substantial heat or cooling in the whole time it takes. There's more energy banked, stored energy, trapped carbon in the trees that are three 500-year-old trees and stored in there. And there's more energy preserved in there than that house will consume in 100 years after it's built, which is capable of lasting, compared to a built-in obsolescent structure with vinyl that's going to dissolve in 15 years. The windows are going to go ahead and leak. We're going to go ahead and talk about destroying the health. The most valuable thing I have to say that's in the future is the health of our children. So, so, that. so, that, so it's, it's you know, that's paramount to being you know, a, a villain. So Brad, <laughs> Brad, let's have a conversation, okay? Let's, I would prefer that we talk to each other about what you're talking about rather than um, you giving us streams of information because that way the, you most I'm going to give you that's pretty much all of it because that covers all the basics and that's the whole premise of why I do what I do so and so why so you've you've created these fantastic ide- you've created these fantastic examples of um, the way people can build these structures in this really healthy environmentally sound uh, keeping in mind future generations way <clears throat> do you do you feel that you don't have the ability or the skills you obviously have the ability and the skills to do what you've done up to this point but at this point all your ranting about what you're doing is not going to make a difference the next step that needs to happen in my opinion is someone needs to go and talk to government about what you're 
what you're want what you've sure. successfully done and and lobby government to pass regulation that makes it possible to do the things you're doing so right. have you so thought about go, that so me go do that part i can't do everything i'm one man here i have no employees I have 100,000 square foot of warehouses full of inventory capable of producing over 100 houses and I have all the materials necessary to go ahead and build the market and to stock it and I've got the studios half built, I've got and that's audio video studios on the second floor, the restaurants all built on the first floor, stages are almost all finished, it's 43 acres and I've got two and a half million dollars of my life into it and I've run out of cash flow. So what have you done to go ahead and say how can I go ahead and not do more when I've worked 80 to 100 hours a week for the last decade on this, and that's after 30 years of being in the salvage and rebuilding inner cities and stuff like that. Well, like I've done I, everything I can. And what I found is the government doesn't want to change unless somebody's going to pay for it and the money and everything, the time to do it. And I don't have that time. I'm 61 years old. Okay, that's that's You've got books to write and plans to create so people like you can go ahead and make these things with some good sense instead of the books that are out there telling people how to do it wrong. So and at can, this point the, in time, I don't want to stop that. Probably the, the, first, the first way that you could become more effective is to slow down and listen to what other people are saying. I mean, you are such, obviously you're such an intelligent person and you have, you've produced so much value for the world in terms of what you are doing. But I wonder if, if you, <clears throat> this is so interesting because this is a tiny house podcast and we're not really talking about tiny houses right now. We're right. talking about saving the world, but have, <clears throat> I understand that you can't do everything and that you're 60 years old and you run out of, you've run out of, um, cash flow and you've got you know enough materials to build a hundred tiny a hundred houses and that you've got enough materials to last you for a lifetime I heard all the stuff that you said but don't you think that there's there's do you think that there's something that you could do around collaborating with other people in a um, way that amplifies what you're doing or do you just do you I've just offered I've offered up I've offered actually stock outposts if you go ahead and find me 10,000, 15,000 square foot in the people, I'll give you the materials. I'll put them in there on consignment and fill it up. Out of 100,000 square feet, I can take it off and give it to people. I've offered up seminars for free. Everybody else is charging for it. I've got more information on my two websites on how to do this and on Facebook than any other and all the other companies combined have put up for free, how to frame and everything else. So I'm putting out there to the public everything they need, and many people are using it and following it. But what you're asking for the next step on this is to deal with government, and that is not my forte. Got it. Okay. So I, I would actually like to give him a, a couple cents worth of credit here. Um, one of the things I think that that uh, Brad, one of the things I think that you can do and that you have done is actually inspire the tiny house movement. I think people are inspired to change. They're inspired to make change. So um, on one hand, it's sort of like, I appreciate your unapologetic uh, sort of perspective. Um, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing. Now you guys go out and make it possible for yourselves. But uh, again, turning back to the tiny house movement, I do want to I, I circle back between the tiny house movement is built primarily of two different types of people. There are people that are build and pray. And what does that mean? Build and pray. That means we build our houses and then we pray. I'm speaking about myself, actually. That it holds together? <laughs> That's what I was wondering, yeah. <laughs> that it holds together, um, that we're not, you know, that the laws are not created, that, that we have to move out, um, that we have a place to put it. So then there are other people that are actually pray to build. Those are the people that are waiting for the government. Those are the people that are waiting for the laws and waiting for the government to change. So I'm, I'm a um, build and pray, right? I built my house mm -hmm. and I still have no idea how legislation is going to play out. My point here, Brad, is that um, 
is that I think what you can do is you can inspire the tiny house movement by actually helping us understand most of the tiny houses, especially our audience, a lot of the tiny houses are tiny houses on wheels, for instance. Um, the government is very, very interested in the safety of those houses, not just where they park, but even more so when they move down the road. Department of uh, Transportation in California is very interested in their safety as they move down the road. So can you can we turn this conversation just a little bit back to tiny houses? What can can you advise what have you done who have you talked to um, that has a tiny house on wheels how can we integrate your ideas into tiny houses on wheels um, how can we integrate your ideas if we go talk to the government and say hey I want to build this house out of you know uh, yes, recycled yes. materials how do how do we speak the language and walk the walk and make sure that they understand that this is not this is not subpar materials um, this is just alternative materials can you talk to us a little bit about that Absolutely. There's several things I've written articles on this subject, particularly on the, the idea, first of all. In fact, I, I'll let you know first. I'm abandoning the tiny house moniker for the pretty most part in going to organic cottages. The moniker's pretty much been ruined by the whole Tho concept because it's been now novelized without going ahead and sending out the precautionary tale that you could kill yourself by not paying attention to center of gravity and all these other issues that I agree with the transportation department and everything else because people don't understand the tires rot out every five years. Even though they got great tread, they'll still blow out. Most people don't buy 14-ply tires and worry about how much the tire weight will hold. Mm -hmm. And they've got a maximum capacity, so when one blows, it can very easily tip over because the center of gravity is too high. Mm -hmm. If you're going to build something and tie up a $10,000 asset underneath your house, get to where you're going. Jack up the house, build the jacks into the corners, go ahead and drive it out and use it to salvage with because it's got a solid bottom on it and make yourself a damn good living, build a couple of houses and barter your way into, into freedom from the matrix and then drop your house back down on the trailer again because you've got good tires now because you've been using them and changing them out. you got good brakes because they've been getting used and they're not going to freeze up when you go down the road. You know your wiring is good and one of the worst things and I've owned hundreds of, tire, hundreds of trailers is that your darn wiring goes out all the freaking time. You lose your lights, you lose your brakes. And some poor fool's being told out there they can tow this with a three-quarter ton pickup truck, which generally is an absolute myth. And I've had got 50 miles an hour tops and already have leaf spring blowouts and had to put bumpers in there. And they're risking their life and everybody with them because in the wind, all of a sudden it goes wobbly. And I respect that when people want to do this on wheels, but we've got to do this with good common sense. You've got to have enough axle carrying capacity and all these other things. But everybody says, oh, I want to save on taxes. I said, you put a $10,000 trailer underneath your house. And it's going to save you, what, 300, 400 years in taxes? And what are you going to pull it with? You're going to buy a dually like you need? How is that economical? So if you're going to build with salvage, it's going to be a little heavier. It's not going to be the lightweight, crappy stuff you can buy. It's going to be a little heavier. It's going to be sturdier. So you need a little heavier trailer. You need a heavier truck. Or instead, plan on having somebody pull it when you go someplace. Or instead, let's get some semi-trailers and start converting them. So we just bring a semi-rig in, plug it up, pull it off, and go and drop it and set it down. Pull the axles, and when you're ready, bring a new set of axles and tires in. They've been getting used in. Put them back on there and move it again. And I can unfold that. So tiny houses can be adapted to a lot of things. Using containers, I'm absolutely against it. If you're not going to go ahead and get rid of the pesticides in the floor, and if you're going to put electromagnetic radiation, which we haven't even discussed yet, inside of a tiny space is very, very bad for your health. If you put that inside of a storage <laughs> container, you now have a Faraday cage with electrical resource in. It's going to go ahead and fry you. If you're not familiar with electromagnetic radiation, if you're within a foot and a half of the wall laying against the wall, you can put a multimeter against your hand and measure 8 to 10 volts of current flowing through your body. If you put your head into that field at night, you don't produce melatonin, which allows you to sleep and rest and reduce your inflammation causes arthritis and other things. People stick their head against these walls. It's bad enough in a big house, but in a small house, how can you get away from the 18 inches of dangerous causes inflammation to your body, electromagnetic radiation coming out of your walls? 
So Stephen? instead of so instead of creating uh, a message of fear, instead of creating a message of with with sort of shock value, and I understand that there's certainly value in fear. Is there any way that we can create a cautionary tale? Is there any um, is there any way that we can sort of boil this down? Um, first of all, I do agree with you. Um, I completely agree with you. Tiny House on Wheels is not always the best solution. There are complications. There are safety issues associated with moving it. There are people that are building basically what I call uh, shacks and then bolting them to flatbeds and calling them tiny houses. So I do agree with you. Um, I take a slightly softer version of the story because um, I'm a slightly probably because I'm a chick. Um, I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> So again, is there is there a way to inspire the tiny house movement on wheels or not to to implement the ideas to take to take your caution um, to heart rather than making them all fearful? Oh my God, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. I'm going to poison myself and my children and give up. Because otherwise, people just shut down when you hear all this stuff. They just close up. Let me go ahead then and say it in such a way that they can go ahead and not really take it seriously and go ahead and ignore it and rationalize it because they can't afford to do it right or they don't choose to afford to go ahead and do that salvage. They want to do something easier. Or the builders that choose to ignore these facts because I don't make a big enough shock value to get them to go ahead and pay attention to it and explain to their customers that they just built a product like this and they're selling to them for $60,000 and they can't get out of it for the rest of their lives. There's a whole bunch of things going on that I'd like to be able to do this with less shock value. I'm not trying to scare people. I don't believe in fear. I believe in being aware. Where I can do something. If you're not aware and your child is now sick, are you going to be pissed off at me because I didn't make a damn point and get your attention? Why didn't you get my attention about this stuff? You knew about this stuff. Why didn't you tell us? I did tell you. Everybody ignored me. I've been putting this out there for 10 years. This business, Tumbleweed, my, my only competition was Tumbleweed, and I got into it because of Tumbleweed. Because they weren't addressing this and they were not even didn't know what they were doing. And so my is very simple. Before you pull a wall down the highway, why don't you go buy an Airstream or an Albion and convert it and make it livable? And then you save $10,000 worth of exterior skin that's waterproof and made by guys that made airplanes. Okay, if you want to travel, get yourself a traveling house. But if you want to build a, an organic cottage and it happens to be tiny, then let's do this with some good sense. And I've been preaching this for 10 years. And now I get a little frustrated because, yes, some people are listening. But inside, instead, the bulk of the industry has moved to the most toxic solution. And everybody's following it like kids at candy at the jamboree and not a single. I can they wouldn't put me on the panel to discuss this stuff. It will not be on the main panel to be discussed because if you guys start talking about this, what happens to sales until you resolve these poison issues? So let's let's talk about your tiny houses. So, or I'm sorry, your organic cottages because I really like the ones that you have. I've seen your your actually your your organic cottages before when Mark and I put together that book, mm-hmm. and um, <coughs> the um, the way you build these things is. Not the way you build them. I'm sure the way you build them, but also the the design and the look and the aesthetic of them is absolutely stunning. How much do you how much do you sell these things for? They um, started about forty thousand. Well, I'm, you know, I stopped selling now. I've stopped building for the public. I'm not doing it Why? anymore. So I committed to build a hundred of them as examples for your generation. I got seventy five of them out in the field on a bunch of people's home land. The bulk of which are on rich people's land that nobody will ever see but their rich friends, and I'll never see them again. So I'll put them back in a bed and breakfast so people can actually experience sleeping in a pure cellular tissue organic house so their lupus and their fibromyalgia doesn't flare overnight and let people understand why you sleep better and why you feel better in an organic house. The evidence is out there that actually shows you live longer in an organic house. So I'm promoting organic. Whether you want to move tiny or larger. Why, why, did, 
Why did you stop building? I don't want to be an employer anymore. I'm tired of working 80 and 100 hours a week to have 20 employees. They're relatively ungrateful, and the government takes all my money for taxes to do things I don't approve of. And after being 30 years at basically three different careers that I was highly successful in, 80 to 100 hours a week, I died four years ago at 24 years old. I changed my perspectives. Everything changed. What happened? What happened then? My son was apparently murdered in Paris, France, for nothing more than an iPhone and a guitar, and he's American. Why do you say apparently? You I don't. Know. You don't know what actually happened. Came out of, yeah, it was three weeks before they found him in the Seine River. Oh, um, and uh, I warned him. I told him I had premonitions. Don't go there. Don't go there. He was two days from coming back, mm. and disappeared. Mm. I know where he went. I knew where it happened. I told him not to go in the neighborhoods where it probably happened. At. But anyway, it's another story. So, so actually, that's that's actually a really good story. I'm not going to harp on your son's murder, but I'm I'm curious what what happened with you after that tragic event happened. How did how did that change you? That was my first vacation of seven days and ten years to go cremate my son and bring him home. Hmm. And you came to some sort of conclusion. I'm not going to the rest of my life away for for the money or for anything else, I'm going to go ahead and work now on the books. I came to Texas at 29 years old, idealistic, living in my first tiny house, which was a, a school bus I converted coming out of college at 25 years old. I came to Texas at 29 and decided I had to make a million dollars to self-publish my book I was working on because there was no internet in those days. So I went off to do that. And by the time I was 35 years old, I made my first million, but my son was born and I got caught up into the quagmire of debt and yeah. paying all the taxes. And so I spent... Six o'clock to eight o'clock at night with my son, and then went back to work and worked weekends. What were you and doing? I, what were you doing at that time? I was a state broker, and I did inner city rehab. I won a lot of awards for converting crack neighborhoods into first-time home neighborhoods, and wow. eventually got blamed for all the gentrification because it got so expensive to live there. And then I decided I needed to semi-retire to see my son. He was eleven, and see him more. So I opened up architectural antiques business sixty miles away in a little country town, and that became. Um, my way to go out and shop and spend some time with him. And then he turned 14, and if you don't know, at 14, you're, as a parent, not the most <laughs> person to hang out with anymore. That's right. Yeah, you know, and so I became suddenly stupid, and so I <laughs> And uh, so I created the largest architectural antiques business in the United States, known as Discovery Architectural Antiques, and uh, Gonzales, Texas, was 132,000 square feet under roof. So when you tell me, yeah, they're doing something out there in California, you know, all those places, I know I was out there doing it 20 years ago. I did that from 1996 to 2006. And when I went out there, for example, my place was four times bigger than all the other places in Texas combined. I went up there to the Northwest. At the time, no, it wasn't happening. This has been a long struggle. I've been preaching this song of salvage, which if you look on YouTube, I have two um, videos, music videos. One of them is three women over 49 and five kids taken down a two-story house in eight days. And all that salvage with neophytes and showing how to do it into a, to a Johnny Cash tune with all the percussion being walls falling and hammers hitting. Hmm. I've done everything I can to pay for all these things myself, to put these videos out there, to instill this. You can do it no matter who you are. There's a job for you in this. Mama, you can run the boys. We can turn this into businesses. We can turn this into a way to buy our way out. You can't export the materials and import a house. you got to build it here. So, so I have a, a personal question to ask you. What happened to, your, um, to the mother of your son? I just divorced two years before, and she brought my son into the divorce, so I gave him everything. I gave him the whole business, the sawmill, the employees, and everything, rather than battle with my son. Unfortunately, neither one of them ever worked at the business, and so he left about a month later on his great 
journey. I said, if you want to travel, son, do it while you're young. You're wasting time making poor grades in school. Hmm. And so he did. And a year and a half later, he died. Okay. And, and so you, <clears throat> excuse me, so you had this huge success in business um, that was then. Yeah, it's, start, no, then Tiny Houses came out. Yeah. When I saw the Tiny House movement start, I said, wait a second. This is bad. We got to start better than this. We got 72 million people about to hit the wall, and we got no solutions. And we need them, and we need a way to do it sustainably, not based on imports and debt. And so I set off to prove we could do it, and everybody thought I was an absolute crazy person. And I did my first house, which is out there, my red mascot. In the beginning, I got lots of press, and, and I was the one that all the websites that exist today started with my pictures, the ones that are out there selling it. Um, they're out there selling it based on originally with my pictures of my house because all the boxes out there were so ugly. After my son died, I really opened up and started creating some very unusual things. It opened yeah. my heart. It changed the way I see the world. It changed yeah. the way I do things because now you have to understand that's my generation. My, my heirs are the kids that follow. Yeah. Let me, I, let me ask you, I, we, I tend to be the one in the, in the studio to take the show in really personal direction. So this, excuse this, this question. <clears throat> Actually, it's more of a statement, Brad. It sounds like with all the things that have happened in your life and the seeming lack of response to your clarion call of caution that you've become kind of a bitter person. I'm a little bitter about the industry right now. I'm a little bitter about the fact that you're saying people are doing this. Yes, I agree. Some people are. But unfortunately, the money is moving in the wrong direction. And elders being put in these tiny things in the backyards and kids being put into it without precautionary tale being told, mentioned, or put in there as a OG, by the way, warning. Yeah, and all all of your cautions are legitimate for sure. I mean, there's, I don't know of anyone, I have not met anyone in the tiny house movement who knows about the cautions better than you. The only one that comes close is that guy that we talked with who does the, um, he, he's the, he does electricity and what's his name? The, Gary Bude. Yeah, Gary Tiny Bude. House Systems. And he's, he's in Texas too. Oh, yeah. yeah he's something in about Texas. Yeah. <laughs> the Tiny House movement is alive and well yes. in Texas. Do you know Gary Bude? We can put him out here. So we, we have, if you're not in the city, I can put him all over Texas. I got more land to put tiny houses on than all the other states combined when you look at the restrictions and all the stuff that you have to go through in other states. Alabama, Louisiana, Florida. No, no. No, no, no. But in Texas, you get out in the country, I can put anything I want out there. Yeah. Yeah. So so for what it's worth, again, you know, I, I think we agree with you. That I think we agree with you, the yeah. tone. I think we agree with you that, that the, the tiny house movement needs to uh, embrace salvage materials probably more than we have. We need to build responsibly. We but, need to build more hard. thoughtfully. It's hard. Because exactly. Because the people who are, like so he's saying, the, the people who are building are building on tiny, on trailers, and the trailers can't hold this this stuff. And so, I mean, he's got... Some little girls, some little girls starts her period at seven and a half, eight years old and has hormone issues all of her life. And some little boy has titties at 10 because he's been breathing in estrogen. Hey, no got titties. You tell me how hard that is. How hard is that? No, well, so, I rec- I, again, I recognize that. So let's take it to your average tiny house um, uh, dreamer. First of all, the market, the demographics for tiny house, uh, tiny houses on wheels, the demographics is women. Uh, between the ages of 35 and 65, over the majority of the tiny house, um, the tiny house movement, um, 
again, the interest and the enthusiasts are, are women between the age of 35 and 65. So I am fit. I'm, I'm not yet 50, but anyways, I, you know, <laughs> single mom, I got two kids. I got my job. I got to, I got to work um, in a corporate job to support my kids. And I want to make a better future for them. And I want to make a better future for myself. I don't have the luxury of taking how much time off it's going to take to tear down a house, to, uh, to build a house um, from scratch that really doesn't have floor plans. Whether, or, whether or, it's going to take the amount of time you think or not, your perception is that you don't have the time. Right. Right. So you have to, you know, in life is a balance. Life is a balance of time and money. And so um, either you have a lot of time, um, you know, it's this constant um, balance. So, again, I want to tell you, we do agree with you. Uh, we agree with your message. We just want to, again, turn it into a cautionary tale, turn it into an inspirational story, turn it into a information sharing opportunity awesome. where we say, hey, this guy is doing some great things. What part of his message can we embrace? Can we move forward with? Um, can we really set up as an example for the tiny house movement? On wheels or not. Um, because again, uh, the majority of them are being built on wheels because of this fear yeah. that's being Our built. Yeah. First of all, all the code being passed right now to keep you from plugging in that house on wheels in nearly any city that has utilities in the country is growing, not shrinking. Just so you're not, in case you're not aware. No, I'm. I am fully aware of that, and and there, those of us in the room are actively, um, actively involved in those conversations with the municipalities. Right. So. Um, what we're dealing with ultimately is, and I'm working with one economic development director trying to get it, so we're tearing down a whole section of the city because they're expanding the harbor, and I'm telling them, look, you can create jobs, you can create housing, you can do all these things out of the trash that comes off there and give that big harbor corporation a green eye instead of a black eye. And they'll donate. Now, if you get these co-ops set up, now you can go ahead and store your stuff over there until you're ready. Now you can rent the space and have all the tools to use, and when you're done, walk away from them. Now you can do the things you're talking about being able to do because you go ahead and schedule it, and you get six weeks, and you got a space, and you got all your friends coming in to help you and all the bartering that you did by helping other people out pays back because you went in there and learned how to do yours by helping other people. If we create these outposts, we create a mechanism through which we can instill this into the next generation because they'll be there playing and watching it and being part of it. If not, in Texas, for example, I don't need an engineering degree, an architectural degree, or a contractor's license to build portable buildings, which when I sell them, they can depreciate them over 10 years' time, give them to their child tax-free, and they can be picked up and moved and set down anywhere you want to, but they are not legally trailers or used to be able to be tagged by the government yet. I don't want to build to the government specs. I build in loopholes. The world is loopholes, not getting around and doing what the government wants you to do, but find out how they designed the law so that you can build around them. Otherwise, every time you ask for help, the corporations will write the paperwork and hand it to the government who will then pass it and put it in place. And that's why we can't use self-building. Salvage lumber was being used to build with all the way into the 60s and then Weyerhaeuser, um, Georgia Pacific, and um, 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 Temple Inland, who were so big, only had one form of competition left. They couldn't raise prices because salvage was so cheap. So they passed national code that says you can't use salvage lumber to build with for framing or any structural. And that's a problem. It's been adopted all the way across our country. So, so the, you started the, this last bit of things that you just said. You started it talking about how you went and talked to a, it sounded like a city planner who had right. a project. You didn't conclude, what happened when you had that conversation? She's in the process of trying to go through and find out how many allies she can find in the system that might be interested in going along with it. And so she's just in the research phase of it. And that's the big problem with most of this is that... Well, hang on a second. Hang on. Don't talk... I'm, I'm curious. You're, you're, 
<clears throat> what you just said <clears throat> seems to me to fly in the face of a lot of things you say about government, which is that this woman is looking for allies and trying to make this thing happen. Isn't that a positive thing? It's a great positive thing, and I've watched now about a dozen of them try like that and basically stop and risk losing their jobs if they continue forward, so they stopped. Even the woman that worked at Habitat for Humanity, they send them one of the top dogs from Habitat down to her place in Hawaii because she talked as an assistant manager to a manager of another Habitat about me maybe able to maybe have a relationship with them and donate stuff to build salvage, to teach how to build with salvage since they're doing deconstruction. And the next day, they had a Habitat for Humanity manager over at her place talking to her manager from headquarters saying we will never have a relationship with a salvage company Lowe's and Home Depot are our boys and we are going to take care of them yeah stop that and don't go through the you go through the chain of command with your ideas you do not talk from one habitat to another habitat you go through the chain of command or you risk your job okay a single mother with a child living in a van couldn't even afford to live in a house she just quit her job to come back to the United States that's what she got for going ahead and bringing it up so I'm telling you the industry I'm not just talking the industry does not want you to go out and get your materials free so Brad, thank thank you for you've shared a lot, and um, I mean I appreciate what you've shared, and I'm sure our listeners have found some value in what you've shared Absolutely. also. And the the con- this is probably one of the more serious conversations we've had um, about tiny houses, and we didn't really talk a lot about tiny houses. So thanks for being on the show. And next next who are we talking to next? Oh, Mark doesn't have his computer open. So next week we're going to talk about some amazing person. Aren't you out of town next week? Oh, Idaho. No, I'm not out of town. So actually, next week is TBD. Remember, we had that talk before our little meeting here. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So we still got some TBD. We don't know we who the hell we're talking. We about. still got some <laughs> scheduling to shuffle around a little bit. And so. I'm, I might be going to Idaho. I'll t- we'll talk more about that later. So tune in next week, anyways, <coughs> because yeah, our podcasts anyway, are always amazing, always amazing, and hopefully, hopefully Perry will feel better next week. I'm already feeling a little better. Thanks for listening, uh, listeners, and we'll see you next week. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sitecast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. 